0: The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back. I know that I am happy to be back for our episode six recap of the star series, Becoming Elizabeth. Before we start, I do want to thank Katie from Queen's Podcast for stepping in last week and being my voice. She did a fantastic job and truly saved the day. This next episode in the series is entitled, What Cannot Be Cured, and of course now we know the end of that statement is, what cannot be cured must be endured. And we were left with a cliffhanger last week showing that Elizabeth was either going to be arrested or, at the very least, questioned in the aftermath of Thomas Seymour's attempted kidnapping and or murder of King Edward Sixth. We open on Thomas in the Tower of London now. His accommodations actually look fairly nice, but later, of course, Bishop Gardner steps in and, and reminds us that no one is actually truly relaxed when they are in the Tower. But Thomas has some nice accommodations. Somerset, his brother, comes to visit. And he makes an attempt to sort of level with his brother. He needs to know the truth of what happened, and now he is using the threat of torture. In this period of history, we know it is filled with tales of torture and very creative methods. Shows like the Tudor's or even Borgia's have depicted a handful of especially terrible methods, and we know the inquisitions of Spain and Rome were also barbaric. Earlier in the season, Catherine Parr even detailed the torture of Anne Askew, so in short, this is not a threat I would take lightly if I were Thomas. It's about to get pretty brutal if he doesn't spill some details about this break-in And his ultimate intentions for King Edward. But Thomas being Thomas at this point is still under the impression that he will receive a trial. So he's trying to keep his story to himself. Now, does that mean he has a different story? Does that mean, obviously, in the context of the show, he's trying to come up with a good story? I don't really know what his motivation is here, but he has decided um, to be tight-lipped. Then King Edward and Somerset are shown out falconing. We've talked about this a little bit because of the stag, Elizabeth and her scene with the stag. So falconing is essentially hunting, but the bird is doing uh, some of the hunting and some of the retrieval. So small game here. But what's really interesting is that everything in this scene is really quiet. And I appreciate the emptiness of background noise here because I once read that in places of danger or when impending danger is around, you don't hear birds. And so the absence of sound in this scene really brought in my focus. It really set the tone of this moment as being very heavy, even dangerous. So poor Edward is of course having a small existential crisis over this idea that his sister and his uncle may hate him enough to kill him but he's realizing that it's also bigger than them because he's he's noticing now that his people hate him too. No doubt this is a reference to cat's Rebellion, which we were introduced to last week. Again, we're shown a scene with pretty intense animal cruelty. I think this is probably the worst one we've seen so far. Edward demands that this falcon be feathered and skinned while alive. And it's depicted as sort of a way to make something else suffer as he does. Now, every single one of our listeners who interacts with us on Twitter hated this. So let's fact check it. Let's add a little levity. court had... So many gossips and diplomats even who made up stories to either frighten or inspire their courts back home. And this story of Edward and the Falcon appeared in March of 1551 and it was written by Ambassador Simon Renard in his account he actually suggests that Edward tore apart the falcon himself and then threatened his privy chamber that he'd do the same to them if they tried to pluck him apart now this event is not likely to have really happened because first of all Simon Renard was not even at english court at the time that he wrote this so whatever he wrote would have been secondhand gossip at the very best in addition This story of tearing apart a falcon had been used previously to describe the Emperor Charles V several decades earlier. It was also unlikely to have been true then either. So this is somehow forming a pattern where this story or this concept of brutalizing a powerful animal and then threatening servants... Um, is something that's frequently used to make a ruler seem formidable after an event or scandal which diminishes the ruler's public image. So in short, I really don't think this happened. I think it was propaganda. But I, like many of you, chose to mute and look away during this scene uh, once I realized what was happening. Then back in Elizabeth's rooms, we learned that she has been held under guard for about a week, but she hasn't been questioned yet. And John Dudley is the person she's primarily dealing with, and he is presumably the one who is going to question her prior to trial. So Dudley comes into these rooms at Chelsea, and he produces a written confession from Cat Ashley and suggests that she was either tortured or held captive because he tells Elizabeth that Cat couldn't write her own confession. It had to be dictated. Now, Elizabeth really does shine in this interaction with Dudley because she's trying to understand First of all, what she's even accused of, like, what's the crime? What am I dealing with? What should I be defending myself about? Um, Rather than just going off and saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. I didn't know anything Uh, because that could get her into worse trouble. So she has to figure out what the crime is first. And then she has to figure out what Kat said in this confession that might put her in danger. So Dudley essentially tells Elizabeth that if she's going to clear her name, she needs to form her own story and stick to it. So I, I loved this because finally it's a little bit of uh, material for Alicia von Ritberg to work with. And um, the character Elizabeth then reveals just enough and admits to Thomas's proposal, but then she says the line, Sir Thomas is a man of much wit and little judgment. Now, that line is a quote from primary sources. She did say some variation of this, uh, but she actually said it on the day of Thomas's execution and not in her questioning, as I understand it. Now, listener Running Mama mentioned the reunion between Cat and Elizabeth as well. And what I'll say about this is, Remember the torture. It keeps coming up in this episode. Even Princess Mary later admits that she agreed to Henry VIII's hurtful proclamations to avoid torture or to avoid being cut off. This is a major motivator in these confessions and in these cases. So for Cat in particular, we do know she was held in the tower in a dark, cold room that she described at night as too cold to sleep. And it was in this space and under threat of torture that she gave her statement regarding Thomas and Elizabeth. So as historians, we do have to consider all the elements that lead up to confessions and whether those confessions are then truly reliable. But again, the most important thing Kat said was that Elizabeth sought the permission of the council for any discussions around marriage. And luckily, this aligned with Elizabeth's own testimony. And it is, in fact, probably what ultimately saved Elizabeth in this particular scenario. John Dudley then goes back and reports to the council that Elizabeth said Thomas was guilty. Already, I'm like, wait a minute. What she actually said was, If he did what they say, then he deserves death. And that's a statement she later repeats to King Edward and her sister Mary. But Elizabeth did not actually accuse Thomas of any violence in her statement. She only addressed the marriage proposal. But what she didn't know was that it was that marriage intention that would seal Thomas's fate. So Somerset is, of course, dismayed by this accusation against his brother, and he commands Dudley to go to Norfolk to address the rebels as a half attempt to sort of satiate the Privy Council's demands for justice. And as Dudley rides off to meet the rebels, Somerset then commands him to show mercy to the rebels. So we know Somerset already understands he's a bit unpopular. So he's saying, show them mercy, uh, which sounds nice, but we now know um, because of hindsight that it was sort of his way of um, trying to appease the public. Um, And we've already seen in this episode Uh, people of Kett's Rebellion who are using tricks to sort of ambush nobles. You know, they're robbing them. They're cutting their throats and leaving them to die on the road. It's quite violent. So uh, we have to assume then that Dudley's response will also have to be quite violent. But before all the Dudleys go out to Norfolk, Robert goes to say goodbye to Elizabeth at Chelsea. And as always, I love the freedom with which Robert speaks to Elizabeth. He is so disgusted by Thomas and what Thomas tried to do with Elizabeth. But he's even more disgusted that Elizabeth is sad about Thomas's fate and that she's having feelings other than anger around um, these accusations. Now, several of you asked about how Robert referred to himself as two eyes in this scene, and this was a nickname of endearment that Elizabeth gave Robert in real life. It has a few meanings. First, and probably more obviously, um, because we know Elizabeth and Robert have a lifelong emotional affair, some suggest that eyes could... um, refer to uh, Robert's eyes. He has famously beautiful eyes. They are, um, like, depicted as his best feature in his portraits. Uh, But it could also have some other meaning, which is that eyes could mean he was Elizabeth's eyes, uh, as in sort of a spy. But later, Elizabeth has several favorite courtiers, she nicknames all of them. So, for example, uh, Tracy Borman writes in her book, The Private Lives of Tudors, that Sir Christopher Hatton was nicknamed Lids, as if he were the Lids to Robert's eyes. So these terms are definitely affectionate. Now, back at court, Henry Gray is stirring up trouble, as he is wont to do, right? He's always got his fingers in some sort of drama. Um, and he has drafted what is essentially a warrant for Thomas's death without the need of a trial. And he hopes to charge Thomas with 33 counts of treason. And the council then takes this warrant to King Edward, who this poor kid is just trying to have a relaxing bath right? And then his whole council shows up and stand around him in this bathroom asking him to sign this death warrant. So never forget y'all, there is nothing in this world that is truly glamorous. Now, eventually the king does sign it, but he acknowledges that Somerset, the Lord Protector, will also have to co-sign it. In reality, here's what went down with this warrant. It was drafted, um, and ultimately presented on March seventeenth, fifteen 1549, at Westminster. And it's been suggested in some transcribed primary sources that because of the close relationships between Somerset and King Edward to Thomas, they requested that interviews, charges, examinations, all of that be conducted Um, without any trouble to them. So basically, the king and lord protector said, do what you have to do for justice, but don't include us. So that's pretty powerful. We know already um, this is a really tragic turn of events for um, the Seymour family and for the king. Now, there is some historical debate back and forth over who really signed the death warrant for Thomas. Thomas. In the show, it suggests King Edward signs it first, um, but there are several transcriptions and some primary source research that suggests Somerset actually did sign this death warrant, but his signature was so shaky that it was nearly illegible. And that's really quite sad, isn't it? To have to excuse himself from the whole process and then put his name on his brother's death sentence. That would be utterly devastating. Criminal or not, Thomas was his brother. And so for Somerset, this is a really terrible spot. Meanwhile, uh, the Privy Council are starting to talk about whether or not Somerset himself has been a good Lord Protector. And they sort of present Princess Mary with the opportunity to become Lord Protector over her brother. Um, Listener Laura asked about this. Uh, and it was also brought up like that it doesn't make sense that Henry Gray would want to put Catholic Mary as a Lord Protector. Uh, and I kind of agree. I've not personally found any primary or even secondary sources that mention this proposal. So for now, I'm going to say that this didn't happen. There is a coup coming, but Princess Mary is not necessarily going to lead it. If anything... Um, They're just trying to set us up to have Princess Mary having like a really powerful feud with whomever does become Lord Protector. So I think it's just a plot device. Then... We were all surprised that we got this really unexpected introduction to the Robsart family in this episode as well. So John Dudley and his uh, two sons arrive at the estate of Robsart, and we get our first glimpse of their daughter, Amy, who will play an important role for Robert here very soon. Listeners Brooke and Running Mama both really liked the inclusion and portrayal of Amy in the show this week. She's educated. She speaks her mind well. She understands the politics of what's happening. Um, Her family were Norfolk gentry. Her father was the sheriff. And they were also devout Protestants. So this potential match that's developing between Robert and Amy definitely makes sense. They are absolutely painting Amy out to already be like so in love. She just can't contain her urge to kiss Robert. And that was kind of a cute scene because she was so embarrassed. She's like, don't tell my dad and definitely don't tell my mom. Like, like this is so embarrassing. Um, And that was really relatable. Um, And I thought the actress did that, that piece really well. But we also see Robert is a little smitten by Amy, and he's starting to react differently now to Princess Elizabeth. He's detaching a bit. So I think we're well on our way to a romantic side story here. Then cut back to the Tower of London, and we get our final scene between Somerset and Thomas. And it's, it's heartbreaking. This is actually, to me, this is like acting excellence, it's like this roller coaster of response and acceptance. And um, the actors are really listening to each other, right? They're not just waiting to say their lines. There's like true interaction here. And, you know, Somerset's trying to give his brother the chance to talk, but Thomas is still really smug, thinking he's gonna get a trial. And so Somerset has to kind of tell him. The trial's not going to happen. And and the fact that Thomas is still, even at this point, assuming his brother can do anything to save him is so tragic. It's so removed. Like, clearly this character, he, he knows he's done some bad things, but he didn't accomplish any of them. So he maybe he's thinking, like, they can't really charge me because I didn't actually accomplish my tasks. I don't know what he's thinking here. Um, and we have some amazing musical beats that happen, uh, leading up to Somerset's admission that he will in fact allow his brother to be executed. So it creates this really interesting sonic tension in the scene. And I also quite loved, you know, obviously the acting choices, but it's because the interaction was so personal. Like Thomas doesn't just completely lose it and go mad, right? We've seen that. Someone gets sent to the tower and within a day, they've like completely lost their mind. I'm sure it happens. The tower is not where you want to be. But here, Thomas is still trying to keep his wits. He's trying to understand what is happening. Like one moment he's writing a poem, which by the way, is a real poem. And then the next moment he's told he's going to die. And that's entirely too much to process in a matter of minutes. So, uh, of course, the show has set it up so that we believe he's guilty of his charges. But here between us on this podcast and on Twitter, we've acknowledged there is more to this story than the traditional narrative. Uh, but in our created world, we're getting really strong acting and some really powerful tone curation. Uh, And it brings us to the day of Thomas's execution. And Princess Mary actually stops Somerset in the hall as he's on his way to his brother's execution. And she tells him that she's been asked to take his position as Lord Protector and that he should just attend the execution as a brother and not as a representative of King Edward. And this is especially brutal. Again, I don't think this happened. I've never, ever read about her being asked to be a Lord Protector. So I think this is just tension, uh, but it's clever. And it kind of feels almost like like the Bond villain reveal, you know, where they spill all their plans at the very end. Um, and I really don't think Mary Tudor would have done that either. Um, But in response to this conversation, Somerset immediately changes course. He bails on attending the execution and instead takes King Edward from Hampton Court to Windsor. Uh, which is a more fortified sort of defensive castle. And in the context of the show, it's because he fears Mary is maybe heading up an uprising. But in reality, you know, it was becoming obvious to Somerset that the Privy Council and the common citizens were all turning on him and his authority. What he wasn't counting on, though, is that by this time, Edward is twelve, he sees these moves as an overreach of authority by Somerset. And very famously, the young king actually kept a diary. And in it, he wrote about this event, quote, Methinks I am in prison, end quote. Which is why at the end of the episode, when Dudley comes to um, well, it would be Windsor, but the show says Somerset House, the prince asks something like Have you come to set me free from this prison? And that's a a direct allusion to the chronicle or to the diary of King Edward. This execution scene for Thomas, I can't really explain it, but it gave me kind of a strange feeling. Because at this point, we've watched so many stories from this period And so it's sort of eerie that from series to series, we see the same visuals of these executions happening in the same places and thinking about how these really were the places. So we're seeing as close to what really happened as possible. I don't know. I got like a little trippy about it. Um, And maybe I'm having an existential crisis. I don't know. But I thought it was just really very powerful. In reality, I think this event would have been pretty somber. Um, Actually, historian David Starkey wrote that people were really surprised that Thomas was ordered for execution, um, that this was sanctioned by the king and by Thomas's brother, um, because Thomas was really popular. He was charismatic, he was charming. People liked him generally, and they were surprised by this. Um, It's possible people showed up to jeer. You know, executions were kind of a popular pastime. Um, But I think this was more realistically a somber day. And, of course, my heart breaks for the moment Thomas realizes his brother and nephew haven't even shown up for his final moments um, because Somerset is trying to cover his you-know-what. And then, even after that, uh, Thomas is betrayed by his servant Richard over the letter we saw him put in his shoe. And that's just really a dark, kind of sad end. Um, Thomas Seymour was beheaded on the 20th of March, 1549. Historian Linda Porter confirms that it took two blows. Again, a very bad end. Um, we're getting sloppy with the executions. Um, particularly dramatic though in this show was the inclusion that his servant Richard, you know, he's so overcome by anger that he actually steps up and holds Thomas's head down to the block, um, Again, I I don't know if this really happened, but a lot of you, and myself included, thought this was a really strong moment in the episode. But also, you guys, like I would never put my hands that close to an axe, especially if I thought that they weren't going to do a good job. <laughs> so I don't know. It seems like a little much that Richard would do this. But in context of the show, this poor servant has been abused. He's been asked to do criminal acts. And so for him, this is his moment of revenge. As far as what was in the letters, I can't say for sure. I do know that in 2004, J.W. Bernard wrote that Thomas had written letters uh, to Mary and to Elizabeth, encouraging them to fight against Somerset as Lord Protector. I, I'm calling a yellow flag on this play because this also could have been a rumor that was started to sort of further turn the public against Thomas. Um, even some of Thomas's former friends and clerics were giving sermons sort of vilifying him and and turning the public opinion away from him because we know that he was popular, Um These acts alone tell us that there's more to the story of Thomas Seymour than anyone knows. They've gone to great lengths to make him look bad to the public. Now, cut back to Elizabeth and Mary. As the clock is chiming, Elizabeth begins to show some grief, knowing Thomas is likely gone. Um, But so many of you said that this was one of your favorite scenes because Mary admits She's not come to comfort her sister, but rather to sort of keep everything in perspective, to bring truth to the situation. I think it's a bit of a surprising interaction because Edward's view of Mary is... Um, That she's sort of a motherly figure. Um, I think listener Terry was surprised that Mary and Edward uh, are seen so frequently together. Uh, But it is documented that Edward quite liked Mary. Um, But for Elizabeth, Mary brings her a dose of reality and honesty. And frankly, the truth really hurts. Um, And, you know, we saw a bit of emotion from Elizabeth in this series, but historian Tracy Borman writes that in reality, Elizabeth showed no emotion at the news of Thomas's execution. So this really is Elizabeth's moment where she comes into her own and behaves diplomatically as is fitting of her station, duty over family, duty over emotion. Then back in Norfolk, the rebellion has been defeated by John Dudley and his sons, Ket has been hung, and a letter arrives from Somerset's son, Edward. Listener Valenta was thinking it was kind of foolish, actually, for Somerset to mention that his son Edward was named after himself and not the king. But even though Edward VI is currently king, he wasn't king when this little boy was born. So if anything, he would have been named Henry. But for the devices of the show, I can see the point here uh, that Somerset considers himself a more important Edward than the king. And so it could be construed as disrespect. But let's get back to this letter. Something in the letter must have revoked the order to show the rebels mercy because John Dudley ultimately decides to hang all the rebels, not just their leader, Kett. Now, in reality, Dudley needed an entire army to defeat nearly 16,000 rebels who were camped out in the name of Kett's Rebellion. And it was a massive battle. And the battle saw the death of an estimated 3,000 rebels with the rest ultimately surrendering and laying down their weapons. So along with Ket, Ket's brother and 49 others were hanged following the battle. Then Dudley... Makes his way over to Somerset House where he informs Somerset that he is no longer Lord Protector and now Dudley is taking that role. But King Edward doesn't seem even slightly bothered by this. So Somerset is deposed easily and Dudley's coup has now placed him at second in command. So the first thing he does, of course, because it's been leading up to this, is he dismisses Princess Mary from the Privy Council in a pretty demeaning way. But she takes it. She takes the hit, and she walks off with some dignity. We're proud. We love to see it. Um, But again, we're being set up for our rivalry here. Then after that, he decides he needs to do a small test for Elizabeth as well. And so the princess is summoned to court to meet her brother, the king. I lost the comment on our thread, but one of you listeners pointed out how strange it is that Elizabeth seems to travel alone all the time. Uh, And I kind of agree. She's like never escorted by anyone, Um, although Robert is kind of there but I don't know if he was meant to be her escort. Anyway, she arrives at court. The king then gives her the note Thomas Seymour hid in his shoe, and in her cleverness, she throws the note into the fire without reading it. And for Edward, this signifies her allegiance to him. So at last, all is well at Tudor court. But we still have two more episodes in our season, so anything could happen here. Now, just for fun, I have a related but unrelated fun fact to share with you here at the end of our episode, Um, just because um, our our friend Katie sent me um, some information that she found out Um, And it turns out there is an incredibly historic and very rumored haunted place here in the U.S. called Dudley Town, Connecticut. And the rumor is that after Henry VIII beheaded a Dudley some of the Dudley family fled to the colonies and set up residence in Connecticut, but they brought with them the Dudley family curse. Of course they did. So the town itself only lasted like a hundred years or so before it was entirely abandoned. And now it's private property and you can't even go into the area without being arrested for trespassing because it is very carefully patrolled and policed. Now, Honestly, because I have to say it, I think all the history of Dudley Town is made up. But you know, I love a historic ghost story. So if you've heard of Dudley Town or if you've been there, let me know. I want to hear your stories. Until next time, I'm Christine Morgan, and I hope you have a great week of historical deep dives. And I look forward to chatting again in a couple of days.